Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. Well, good morning, everybody. As Olivia said, I'm Jeremy Moore, I'm pastor of discipleship here at Southridge. I thought about starting with just like an awful joke, like Nathan usually starts with, um, and then I thought, um, you'd, after the service, you'd probably say, thank you for not doing that. But I do have a story for you. I have a story. There's a battle that's raging in the Moore household, and it's called the Battle of the Covers. I don't know if you guys have the Battle of the Covers in your house. Um, we have a five-year-old. Um, we have a, a large breadth of ages in our house. We have adults, we got teens, and we have a five-year-old. So our five-year-old, in the wee hours of the morning, many mornings, maybe 3, 3.30, will kind of crawl into our bed and kind of cozy up between mom and dad. And um, it, it's mostly cute, but there's something that's not cute about it, okay? The thing that's not cute about it is he gets hot, and he kicks the covers off. So, you know, look, we all cozied up, like, on a chilly night, and he'll kick the covers off, and then, like, my wife and I will kind of pull it up, and then, like, maybe 15, 20 minutes later, he kicks it off again, and we'll pull it back up, and, like, just, like, continue, 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 until finally, one of us will say, Hudson, if you want to stay in this bed, you will stop kicking the covers off. <laughs> so, this is not an epic challenge. It's not an epic power struggle. But to me, it actually is a little picture that helps me kind of grab onto a power struggle that is in Scripture, a power struggle between humans and God. And the issue is, who has the right to rule? So who, whose job is it to be king? Uh, in Genesis chapter 1, uh, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, um, God is sovereign, creator of all. Um, he actually forms and fills creation with just the power of his words. And he creates human beings, his honored uh, stewards, his valued stewards, to uh, submit and surrender to him and to carry out his work uh, to oversee creation. But it's not long before human beings trust in God turns to lust for power, and we want to bump God off the throne, and we want to step onto the throne, and we want to rule as king. So we're going to consider that issue. We're in a series this morning called Questions. And the question this morning is, are you the king? Are you the king? And specifically, the Roman governor Pilate asks that question of Jesus when he's interrogating him at his trial. He says, are you the king? Now, down through the ages, generation after generation, culture after culture, each human being struggles with this. Who has the right to rule my life? Am I the king of my own life, or is God the sovereign creator of all? Uh, it, does he have the right to be king of my life? So we're going to consider that question this morning, and we're going to take a look at the passage, John 18, verses 28 to 40. Um, and we're going to see in this passage four self-centered heart postures. Okay, four heart postures that are sort of kind of evidenced by things that people say or do that bump Jesus off the throne, that say, no, he's not the king. And instead, they set up self on the throne as the true king. So Terry is with us this morning. He's going to read John 18, verses 28 to 40. As you listen, listen for what heart postures that you see coming out in the words and the actions of the different people in the, in the narrative. 
Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now, it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If you were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. So as I read this passage, I see four heart postures that stand out to me, evidenced by actions and statements that uh, demonstrate setting up one's self as king. Heart postures that set up self as king. So the first one I see, I notice in the religious leaders what I'll call a checklisting posture, a checklisting posture. So we just heard in verses 28 and 29 that the Jewish leaders... Uh, the Jewish religious leaders, they wouldn't go into Pilate's palace. Instead, Pilate had to come out to them. Why was this? It was because at the time, it was considered unclean for a Jewish person to go into a non-Jewish person's house. And so they were very concerned about ritual cleanliness. And the reality is, is John says they wouldn't be able to partake in the Passover. The Passover festivities were happening. They went into the Roman governor's house. Then it would have been days of like these um, cleanliness rituals. And they would have basically missed the Passover festivities. So instead, Pilate came out to them. Now, uh, John kind of highlights something here that throughout the Gospels, like Jesus has just had a bone of contention the whole time with the religious leaders. Um, and that, namely, is that Jesus, over and over, Jesus has um, confronted the Pharisees on their overly behavioristic and their overly external approach to spiritual cleanliness. They created sort of this checklist of external behaviors. And as long as the checklist was followed, they pretty much considered a person to be good. 
You know, they were morally clean. So Jesus strongly opposes this posture. Uh, one couple of different places, Matthew 23, verse 27, Jesus says to the Pharisees, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. Similarly, he actually says in Mark 7, after being accused by the Pharisees of not following the cleanliness rituals strictly enough, Jesus actually says this, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. So in contrast to this checklist approach, this external checklist approach that the religious leaders had, Jesus saw the human problem as something different. For Jesus, the human problem is not that we just need a better checklist. We need somehow to have God's checklist, and then we just need uh, more self-discipline to sort of check off the boxes better and more consistently. For Jesus, the human problem is, is that we have a deeply diseased heart. It's diseased with uh, sin, and it needs healing. It needs transformation. As the heart is healed through God's grace, through ongoing relationship with God, then good things actually flow from the inside to the outside. So Jesus' approach is inside out, through and through. Now, in this passage, John points out like a shocking disconnect. The shocking disconnect is that the religious leaders were so concerned about this ritual cleanliness. And while they checked this external box, basically what they're in the process of doing is they're orchestrating the death of an innocent man. And more than that, the incarnate God. The commentary John for you uh, captures this really well. The writer says, these are men who have, have aided and abetted in a serious miscarriage of justice. All due process has been ignored, and now they're trying to convince the pagan Roman governor to do their dirty work for them, and they're worried about ceremonial uncleanness. We must be careful lest our external acts of obedience to God, going to church, being baptized, being a church member, etc., are allowed to hide us from the truth of our internal sickness. It's hard for us to be honest about it, but the sickness, but we have a sickness in us, and it is an animal seeking to devour us. And most of all, to throw off God and to be done with him so that we might have liberty from his rule and run our lives the way we want them to be run. That's a, that's a powerful image. Did you hear like the one thing that he said? The sickness we have in us is an animal seeking to devour us. So this checklisting heart posture, it bumps Jesus off the throne and it sets up self on the throne. Here's how that works. If my problem is that I just have a few little behaviors that I need more discipline to manage and I, I just need to kind of like check the boxes better and more consistently externally, then I really don't need God to do that. I can just muster up some willpower and I can behave better. Um, but if the problem is actually deep beneath the surface, if the problem is a, a heart that's diseased by sin and desperately in need of transformation, then I need a king whose healing and whose redeeming love and whose power is going to actually heal me from the inside out. We just heard about Arhub, 
One of the most exciting things to me about partnering with our hub is that this is their DNA. That our hub's DNA is not merely have better coping strategies, try harder, behave better. It's actually an inside out approach. So the R-Hub DNA, and many recovery programs are not like this, but the R-Hub DNA is gospel-centered. That's to say that if your life is a tree, they're not interested in merely stapling healthy-looking fruit on the tree, which will actually just kind of hang there and rot after a while. What they're interested in doing is inviting God, show us where the root is rotten. Show us where the root of our lives is rotten. And God, heal that root so it can actually draw nourishment from God and it can grow fruit that is actually healthy and lasting in our lives from the inside out. So the religious leaders had a checklisting heart posture. Secondly, a compromising heart posture, a compromising heart posture. Both the religious leaders as well as Pilate displayed a compromising heart posture. They both opted for comfort and convenience over doing what was right. Look at verses 29 and 32 in your Bibles. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If you were not a criminal, they replied, we would not hand him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law, but we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. So the religious leaders, they really offer no concrete charges. They offer just this lame and vague statement that if he wasn't a criminal, we, then we wouldn't have brought him to you. They just kind of make this vague and lame statement that he's a criminal. Matthew and Mark actually tell us exactly what's kind of going on behind the scenes. Matthew and Mark both tell us Pilate knew it was out of envy that they brought Jesus to him. Pilate knew that it was because of their petty jealousy about Jesus's influence over people who they considered to be theirs. A Jewish execution for blasphemy was typically a stoning. It was death by stoning. In this case, um, they couldn't stone Jesus because they were subject, as, as uh, subjects to the Roman Empire, they were actually subject to Rome's authority to decree the execution. And so they were subject to Rome's methods and to their authority to sort of authorize the, um, the execution. So if they could manipulate Pilate into sentencing Jesus to die, it would actually solve two problems. The first thing that it would do is it would actually be legal. The second thing that it would do is it would create the appearance that it was Pilate's fault, and they could sort of like um, duck maybe the appearance that they had murdered an innocent man. Pilate smells this corruption, Matthew and Mark say. But Pilate is in a tight spot. Pilate had not actually curried favor with the Jewish people over his eight years in power up to the point where we read this account. Uh, Pilate had actually had a contentious relationship with the Jewish people. I'll give you a couple examples. One, uh, at one point, he actually had Roman guards stationed in the Jewish temple, and they had Roman standards with picture, a picture of Caesar on it. And um, it was standard to have this inscription on the Roman standards. Tiberius, son of divine Augustus, basically proclaiming the deity of the emperor. Jews said, blasphemy, this is a graven image. And they rioted in response. Another time, 
Pilate actually built a 23-mile aqueduct to pipe water into Jerusalem. That was a good thing. Guess where he got the money from? He robbed the temple treasury to pay for the aqueduct. Jews cried injustice, and they rioted. So Pilate is truly here sitting on a powder keg, and this situation is about to light the fuse. Governors who were seen as a liability didn't last long in the Roman Empire. If they were seen as weak or incompetent, they would lose their position or even be executed by the Roman authorities. So Pilate had a double challenge here. He had a double challenge, which kind of explains how he's sort of trying to get out of this whole thing. He had to give the appearance that he was swiftly dealing with threats to the empire, so he actually wasn't removed from power or executed from above. But he also had to appease the Jewish community who he had a very contentious relationship with, and he had to sort of find a way to do both. Now, in just a few verses, we'll see Pilate caves to the pressure. He sentences an innocent man, and even the incarnate God, the sinless incarnate God, he sentences him to death. Similarly, the Jewish leaders orchestrated that death. Uh, they put pressure and they orchestrated behind the scenes for an innocent man, the incarnate word of God, to be executed. Both the religious leaders and Pilate displayed a heart posture of compromise. Both of them opted for what was comfortable and convenient rather than what was right. And so this compromising heart posture, it sets up self as king. It bumps Jesus on the throne, sets himself as king. Here's how that works. If it's, my, if it's my job to direct my own destiny, then I get to define good and evil, just and unjust, righteousness and corruption. I get to define it. And if it, if it, if it just gets too hard, then I can just jump ship on that. I can just do what seems best to me. But if God is the creator and ruler of all, if he's the center and source of everything, then he gets to say, here's how I've created life to work. He gets to say, here's what's just and unjust. Here's what's good and evil. Here's what's righteous and corrupt. Many years ago, I was in mixed company, and I actually heard somebody just say in passing, like, oh, when my wife was my ex-wife, and it was like one of those things I was like, you're like, what? You know, when my wife here was my ex-wife. And so I asked that person's friends later who were close to him, like, what was he talking about? And they told me this whole story. They basically said, this man had gotten divorced from his wife. Um, he was seeing somebody, but he was single. And God was strong. As he walked with God, God was strongly putting heavily on his heart to pursue reconciliation with his ex-wife and just see where that went. So um, I know in every situation that wouldn't be possible. I know in every situation that wouldn't be healthy, in every situation that wouldn't be wise. In this case, it was possible, healthy, wise, and God was strongly convicting him to move in that direction. And God was strongly convicting him, this will glorify me. This will glorify and worship me to do this. His friend said this was the hardest thing that he ever did, but what he actually did was he was seeing someone, and he actually broke up with that person, and he, he reached out to his ex-wife, and he said, would you pro uh, pursue a process of reconciliation with me? And he actually said to her, um, he acknowledged the ways that he wronged her, and he said, I know, like, talk is cheap but would you pursue an intentional process of reconciliation with me? And she said, yes. She said, yes. And so they actually entered counseling together. After much time, much counseling, a lot of healing, they were actually remarried. And they actually, have, to this day, have a growing and healthy marriage. And so it would have been so easy 
for this guy to say, that's just too hard. Like what God is strongly convicting me to do, what's important to him is just too hard. But um, through God's grace, um, in relationship with God, um, God, like the wind at his back, was blowing him forward, giving him strength, um, giving him courage, giving him peace to do what was right. And he was able to do what was hard as nails right, even though it was hard. A checklisting heart posture, a compromising heart posture. And then thirdly, we're going to look at a cynical heart posture, a cynical heart posture. Look at verse 33 if you have your Bibles. Verse 33, Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you king of the Jews? So Pilate is still feeling things out here. He's trying to figure out, is what the religious leaders are saying, like, does it have any merit? Is there anything here he can use to kind of leverage to get himself out of this tight spot? Verse 34, Jesus says, is that your own idea, Jesus said? Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? So Jesus prompts him to reflect on like why he's even asking. Is it really because he wants to know, or is he just trying to appease the religious leaders? Verse 35, am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests had you handed over to me. Pilate snaps at him and basically says, um, look, he's like, like, you're the one who's Jewish here. Don't you know what's going on in your own community? And he says, like, your leaders are the ones who handed you over to me. And then still trying to kind of feel out the accusations to sort of maybe find some leverage. Pilate asks, what is it that you have done? Verse 36, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Jesus basically addresses the issues underneath the question. He addresses the issues underneath the conversation. He basically says, look, my kingdom is a different kind of kingdom. You don't have to worry about me starting an uprising to um, confront the corruption of Rome or to confront the corruption of the Jewish leaders. He said, like, my kingdom is a different sort of kingdom. It's a kingdom that brings change to lives and communities and culture, not through violent uprising, but uh, through spiritual transformation from the inside out. Verse 37, Pilate says, you're a king then? You're a king then, said Pilate? He's cautiously intrigued, but he's still pressing for a con confession that will give him an out. And then there's some humor here. With humor, Jesus says, you say that I'm a king. And Jesus basically says to him, like, I wasn't the first one that said king. You were the first one that said king. I just said kingdom. He says, you say I'm a king. And he goes on to say, in fact, the reason I was born and came into the world was to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So Jesus draws a line in the sand with Pilate. He says, Pilate, will you listen to me when I say that I'm the leader of a kingdom movement and that God is working through me to bring this kingdom movement to earth? Or will you continue with the status quo and ignore what's true? And Pilate responds this way, verse 38a. What is truth, retorted Pilate? What is truth? Pilate essentially throws up his hands and he says, eh, like who knows what's true? The irony is that truth incarnate, the incarnate word of God stood right there in front of him. Truth and flesh as a person stood right there in front of him. And he was too cynical to see it. 
He was too cynical to see it. A number of us this past fall read a book called A Praying Life uh, by Paul Miller. Paul Miller talks a lot about cynicism and a cynical attitude in that book. Uh, Paul writes this, cynicism is increasingly the dominant spirit of our age. The opposite of a childlike spirit is a cynical spirit. The cynic is always observing, critiquing, but never engaged, never loving, and hoping. The psalmist was in God's face, hoping, dreaming, asking. Cynicism, on the other hand, merely critiques. It is passive, cocooning itself from the passions of the great cosmic battle that we're engaged in. So a cynical heart like the one we see in Pilate, it sets itself up as king and it bumps Jesus off the throne in favor of self. Now here's how that works. If like Pilate, our attitude is, eh, like who knows? Who knows what's true? Then the inevitable result is that we'll just sort of pragmatically do what seems best to us. We'll do what seems right in our own eyes. Um, if on the other hand, in spite of our struggles, in spite of our doubts, we pursue God, we search the scriptures, we actively surround ourselves with spiritually rich community, even in spite of our spiritual struggles and doubts, um, these can be bridges. They can be bridges to deeper relationship with God and a clearer understanding of what he's revealed. Not too long ago, I was sitting in a restaurant and I was waiting for my girls to be done with the practice. And um, I was sit, sitting there reading the Bible and I was preparing for a teaching. It was actually one of the, the teachings in the last series that we did in John. And um, this, all of a sudden, I just hear this voice. This guy's like, hey, are you reading the Bible? And I just look up, and there's like this older guy standing there. And he was like, um, I was like, yeah. And he said, what are you studying? And I said, I'm reading the Gospel of John. And I said, I'm actually preparing a teaching for, um, for Sunday. And he said, oh, he's like, you're a minister? And I said, yeah. And he said, um, I used to go to church. He said, I, I went to church like years ago. I grew, actually grew up in church. And he said, I've really been hurt by the church. And he said, and, and I really don't even know if I believe half the stuff I learned in church. And he's like, but, um, but I, I, I believe Jesus is my savior. And I said, well, that's a, that's a fantastic starting point. I actually said to him, I said, that's the right starting point. And I said, sounds like we got a lot to talk about. You got a lot to sort out. I said, but we're brothers in Christ. Jesus, your savior, like we're brothers in Christ like through our mutual faith in him. So we probably have a lot to talk about if we sat here and talked for a long time. We have a lot to talk about. And it sounds like you have some stuff to sort out. Uh, and then he started asking me like all these questions. He's like, oh, like, where's your church? And like, what do you guys believe? And he's like, um, maybe I'll come sometime. And he's like, and what's the service like? And, um, and he's like, yeah, he's like, I really want to go back to church. He's like, um, I, think, I, think, I think God is leading me to go back to church. He's like, I think I, like, I have some stuff to sort out. And what struck me about this guy is like, there wasn't an ounce of cynicism in what he was saying. Like, he, he kind of didn't, he, he didn't have it all figured out. Um, he was really struggling with some serious struggle, spiritual struggles and doubts. But he had such an open spirit to what God may be leading him to do and what next steps that he could take just to pursue his relationship with God and maybe clarify his understanding of what's true. And what struck me is that even to the point of just saying to a total stranger, hey, you reading the Bible there? Like this guy um, was just spiritually open and he was just leaning in. He was just leaning in. It was a beautiful thing. A checklisting heart posture, compromising heart posture, a cynical heart posture. And then lastly, a counterfeiting heart posture, a counterfeiting heart posture. So Pilate has just said to Jesus, what is truth? And he goes out to the crowd to say something. He has a last ditch effort that he's going to try to carry out 
uh, to get off the hook, uh, to get out of sentencing Jesus to execution and to also appease the religious leaders. So what he does is he invokes the time-honored custom of releasing a prisoner during Passover. Look at verse 38b to verse 40. With this, Pilate went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. So in a shocking twist, they don't choose Jesus. They choose this other prisoner named Barabbas. This, uh, John tells us that Barabbas was an insurrectionist. He was basically in prison for starting an uprising. Matthew tells us more about Barabbas. He actually tells us Barabbas' first name. Here's a little trivia question. Does anybody know what Barabbas' first name is? It's pretty interesting. What's Barabbas' first name? It's Jesus. Matthew tells us that his full name is Jesus Barabbas. Now, here's what's interesting about that. Uh, Bar means son of. Um, what's Abba mean? Yeah, father. Okay, I heard a couple of people say it. Father. Barabbas' full name means Jesus, son of the Father. Matthew and John frame him as a counterfeit Christ. Okay? So they're communicating here subtly. He's a counterfeit Christ. Pilate brings him out, and he's like, look, um, this guy or this guy? And the crowd shouts for the counterfeit Christ. Now, Jesus had just said to Pilate, because his kingdom is not of this world, he said, my followers will not cause an uprising. They're not going to rise up against the corrupt authorities. Now along comes a counterfeit Christ, and he's in prison for rising up to overthrow Rome. And the crowd shouts, yes, we want that. We want that. We don't want the real Christ. We want the one who rises up to overthrow Rome. We want the quick fix. So they trade the true king for a cheap counterfeit. A counterfeiting heart posture bumps Jesus off the throne, and it sets up self as king. Here's how that works. There's something in us that wants to predetermine what we think the best outcome for our life would be, and then we want to trust in the someone or the something that we feel like will actually get us to that outcome. Now, we'll trust in God as long as God is actually getting us to the outcome that we've already decided is the best one for our lives. But there's something in us, there's something in you, there's something in me, that when it becomes clear that God is actually leading somewhere different, then we'll actually say, instead, I'm going to jump ship on that. I'm going to shift my trust to someone or something that's created, not the true king, a counterfeit Christ, a created thing to lean on to get me to the outcome that I've already decided is the best place for my life to be. I was in a small group setting um, a couple weeks ago, and this whole idea came up, this whole idea of counterfeit Christ. And I, I said, oh, that makes me think of a quote. There's a quote by G.K. Chesterton, and he says, when a man knocks on a brothel door, he's looking for God. And this is what he meant. He meant, look, you're not actually going to find meaning, safety, love, fulfillment by knocking on a brothel door. But that is what you're looking for when you knock on a brothel door. Uh, it's a counterfeit, but it, it, it won't actually get you those things. Um, but what you're actually looking for is meaning, safety, love, purpose. Um, you'll get a quick fix by knocking on a brothel door, but you won't ultimately get those things we all long for. And the reason is because those things we all long for, we've been designed to only find them in relationship with God. We've been designed to find them in relationship with God. 
We talked about a checklisting heart posture, a compromising heart posture, a cynical heart posture, and a counterfeiting heart posture. And so is this just a downer? Like, is this teaching just a downer? We're just going to talk about all these ways that our hearts are sick, and that's it. We're just all going to go home and just be like, oh, man, we have such sick hearts. Um, no. Um, Jesus actually, in verse 37, he actually suggests, suggests a heart posture. That's the opposite and the antidote for the heart postures of self-centered sickness that we've been talking about. So look at verse 37. Jesus says to Pilate, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So he says the opposite and the antidote of this self-centered, sick, sin-filled heart is a listening heart. A listening heart. What does it mean to listen to the true king? To listen to the true king is to, to lean into his healing work in our hearts and lives. To listen to the king is to learn from his life-giving truth. To listen to the king is to actively move towards trusting his good character and his gracious authority. A checklisting heart posture says, I'm good. I've got all the behaviors managed and I really don't need God. A compromising heart posture says, I'll do what God says is right until it gets too hard and I'll do what's right in my own eyes. A cynical heart posture says, eh, like who knows who's true, so I'll just kind of do what seems pragmatic to me. And a counterfeit heart posture says, this created thing right here, it'll give me the meaning that I'm looking for. In contrast to that, a listening posture is a posture of need. It's a posture that opens hands to God for healing. A listening posture is a posture of submission. It's a posture of head bowed down to God's authority. A listening posture is a posture of attentiveness. It's a posture of eyes wide open to the things that are important to God. A listening posture is a posture of worship. It's hands lifted high in adoration to the only one who is worthy of our glory and praise. Nathan mentioned a few weeks ago that we're going to tread where angels need to tread, uh, fear to tread, and we're actually going to look at Revelation in the fall. Um, thinking about that a little bit, there's, there's a chapter in Revelation that stands out to me that provides a powerful picture of a listening heart posture. Uh, Revelation chapter 4. Um, strange, beautiful, majestic passage, inspiring passage. Um, in the passage, Revelation chapter 4, it's kind of a tiny little chapter in Revelation. Um, John, who's the author, sees this door that opens up to heaven. In heaven, he sees the Lord seated on his throne, and he sees um, the Lord shining in majesty. There's actually a rainbow surrounding his throne. There's lightning and thunder around God's presence, almost uh, evoking like kind of like that Mount Sinai Exodus imagery in the Old Testament. There's thunder and lightning around the throne. And there's these bizarre... I mean, if you read it, they're bizarre. There's these bizarre, strange, angelic creatures, and there's four of them. And they seem to represent the four directions. Oftentimes in the Old Testament um, and in Revelation, we, t we hear things like this, the four winds or the four corners. Now we have four living creatures. They seem to represent north, south, east, west, almost like every direction that way, every direction that way, the whole of creation. They seem to represent the whole of creation in the passage. And uh, day and night, 
These living creatures never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Also surrounding the throne are 24 elders sitting on thrones. 24 elders. What's that about? Uh, 12 apostles, 12 tribes of Israel, 24. Seems to represent the whole people of God. So you've got the whole people of God and the whole of creation in worship to the Lord. And every time that the living creatures say, holy, 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 the, uh, the 24 elders, they cast their crowns down. And they, um, they say to the Lord, you are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created, and have their being. So this breathtaking scene pictures the whole people of God and the whole creation in worship to God. It says powerfully to our senses, everything was made for God's glory. Everything was made to bow down to the true king. Everyone and everything, all of creation and all of God's people were made to give the glory, to give glory to the true king. So I'm going to invite the worship team up to the stage. As I do that, I want to challenge you and me to keep this vision in mind throughout the week. Let this vision speak to your heart. Let this vision speak to your imagination during the week. And everything we put our hands to, everything we put our hearts and minds to, let this vision shape those things. Let it come to mind as you go about your daily rhythms. Maybe it's writing a check or taking out the trash or having that hard conversation with your spouse or your coworker or responding to your stress or prioritizing your free time. Whatever it is, big or small, seen or unseen, let this vision shape it. Be reminded that that thing, big or small, seen or unseen, can be a way to give glory to the true king. And that all creation is oriented around God as this, the source and the center of all life. Through God's grace, may our lives be a reflection that the whole creation, the whole people of God were made for the glory of the true king. Through God's grace, may our whole lives speak, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Uh, we're going to respond by singing a song from Revelation 4, inspired by that passage. So we're just going to invite you to stand, and Sam and the team are going to lead us in that song.
you are holy we bow down before you God we're not going to heal our, the brokenness that's deep within us the sickness that's deep within us by just trying harder and just mustering up enough discipline to sort of check those boxes better God but because you are the true king your redeeming love is powerful and so, God, we just invite you to change us from the inside out, that we can grow true and lasting fruit in whatever those areas of brokenness are in our lives. God, truly, we are one tiny little voice in God's people and all of creation. And God, this morning, we just do our part to proclaim you as the true king, deserving of glory, and we open our hands to invite your redeeming power in our lives. And God, we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's so awesome to worship together. Um, remember, Olivia said there's Easter weekend invite cards out on the kiosk. Uh, grab one or more of those and just prayerfully consider who you're going to invite to Easter services. God bless you. It's great to worship together.